Because no two investors are the same, one size doesn't fit all. There's more to it. At S&P Dow Jones Indices, we offer index strategies for all types of investments. Comprehensive ESG solutions, core retirement strategies, multi-asset diversification, and new ways of thinking about risk management and income. They're all in one place. Express your investment views and give yourself the freedom to go anywhere with S&P Dow Jones Indices. Search Indexology on the web or hashtag Indexology on Twitter and LinkedIn. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. If people want to make friends, I'm just trying to make you some money. My job is not just to entertain, but to educate and teach you. So call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. Here we go. After a nasty day like today, Dow lost 190 points. S&P sank 0.61%. NASDAQ declined 0.56%. The top callers, they're back. And they're coming out of the woodwork. And if you're an investor, the most terrifying phrase in the English language is, we're at the top. Let me say up front, I don't think this market's speaking. I don't think we're at a top. But the averages have rallied so hard for so long that it's perfectly rational to expect at least a garden variety pullback. And every time we go down, you're going to be bombarded by this endless and, yes, I think worrisome, if not frightening, top talk. So tonight I want to vaccinate you against these vociferous top callers by laying out the 10 best reasons why the market actually might be peaking. Again, I don't believe that's what's going to happen here. I'm just trying to ensure that you'll be prepared when you hear pundits and portfolio managers make these same arguments, but they're going to do so in a more emphatic and, yes, hysterical way and tone, rather than a calm and rational one, which allow you to think about maybe what you should do, some selling, maybe raise some cash. I don't want to spook you. They do. So what is the number one concern you're going to hear talked about? It's going to be the worldwide slowdown. Uh, today, the IMF cut its forecast for global growth. And hey, I, I totally get why someone would look at these numbers and assume the stock market's about to take a nosedive. I get that. But as someone who's followed stocks for decades, I can tell you that these IMF numbers, they're lagging indicators. Stock market is a forecasting machine, and we baked in a global slowdown a while ago. The important thing is what happens next. And this international weakness makes it a lot less likely that the Federal Reserve will raise interest rates. So even though the media may characterize the data as bearish, and I heard them do it all day, the actual implications for our stock market are quite bullish. Second source of top calls, China, deal or no deal. This argument is legitimate. If the trade talks break down, that will do a lot of damage to the averages. We've seen many internationally oriented stocks lately just soar. Precisely because people believe that a bargain is imminent. My fear is that we may not get a trade deal at all unless both sides desperately need one. And as long as our stock market holds up, well, we don't need one. China might need a deal to continue to breathe new life into its economy as its market's been going up. But there's some real sticking points here. Chinese understandably want Trump to roll back his tariffs as part of any agreement. Trump is reluctant to do that because the tariffs act as an enforcement mechanism. Oh, it's a mess, people. However, if we do get a deal, even if it's not that good, I think the market works higher. As long as that's a possibility, well, do you really want to panic? Remember, no one ever made a dime panicking. 
Third, you're going to hear that this market's finally gotten very overbought. Regular viewers know that I pay for the Standard & Poor's Oscillator, which tells you when stocks are in overbought or oversold territory. Anything north of five means it's too late to buy because we're due for a pullback. Last night's reading was plus six, which is why we put all our buying on hold and trim some positions for my charitable trust, which you can follow along by joining the ActionAlertsPlus.com club. But we're already getting the cure for an overbought market. Lower stock prices like we saw today. You don't need to worry about the oscillator unless the averages surge higher again, and they sure didn't this afternoon. The fourth worry, the inverted yield curve. Now, I know we're supposed to be terrified when short-term interest rates cross above long-term rates, as it's a traditional arbinger of recession. But I just can't bring myself to worry that much. The yield curve got inverted because the Fed misread the economy and foolishly tightened one time too many, hitting us with a rate hike when every indicator I followed had turned down. The thing is, we really are heading to recession. Then Fed Chief Jay Powell, who's learned his lesson, will simply cut rates to juice the economy. Bye-bye, inverted yield curve. Will those who told you to sell in the inverted yield curve tell you to buy on its repeal? I don't think so. The fifth argument for why we're at a top, earnings season. Lots of people seem concerned that the results will be weaker than expected. As I pointed out last night, when companies like 3M and FedEx have disappointed, their stocks go down for a bit and then boom, they give us a decisive rally. So I'm not worried about weak earnings if the stocks are down. That said, I think today's sell therefore, is very healthy because it's good for stocks to go down as we head into earnings season. That way, if they, well, let's just say they have plenty of room to rally if they beat the numbers. Today removed a lot of the froth that I don't like. One more pullback like this before the big banks start reporting on Friday, and I think we're going to be in very good shape. Six top call, oil. All right, the presumption here is that when oil goes higher, stocks should go lower. If only that were true. Stocks and oil have been trading, well, they've been rallying side by side for ages. So you're going to see that later on in the show. You will not believe the correlation. It's extraordinary. Uh, when, look, I, I see when, because when the economy is strong, the price of crude rises, they, they correlate. So oil can keep climbing for a while, and I'm not going to sweat the program. Plus, cars are a lot more fuel efficient these days, so no need to freak out about gasoline-led inflation. Yet I keep hearing it all the time. Seventh worry, Boeing. Hey, make it a class unto itself. This longtime market leader is now under assault from really every corner thanks to the 737 MAX debacle. What if we lose Boeing as a leader? Well, I'd say we'll find new leaders. Boeing is a special situation. It's not easily replicated. It's what we call sui generis at law school. You can't extrapolate to the rest of the market or the economy, so stop worrying about it. Eight, top call, overvaluation. Oh, boy, I heard this all day. I mean, you know, they, I always bring out the same ones. I, oh, I Ulta Beauty, uh, Chipotle, I'm a cloud. Uh. Oh, give me a break. At any given moment, they're always going to be market darlings. When you find them, respect them for what they are. Overvalued stocks for the near term, they might be cheap in the out years. That was the case with Ulta. That was the case with Chipotle. That was the case with ServiceNow. That was the case with Workday. But Splunk, I could go on. But I refuse to get scared about a time-honored concept like overvaluation that's been with us for ages that people try to scare you about. Nine, okay, autos and housing. Guilty, they're weak. The former's plain true. Legitimate worry. Again, though, there are some structural issues bedeviling the auto industry. Uber and Lyft make the prospect of owning a car a lot less attractive. Auto loans have gotten prettily expensive. Cars last longer than they used to. While I can see selling the auto-related stocks here, they're so darn cheap that I want to take the other side of the trade. I mean, honestly, I'm going to ask you, I'm going to ask you a question. I want you to look inside yourself. Do you really want to sell the stock of Ford here? Ford? I don't. That's as close to a buy of recommendation I've given on Ford. 
I'm pointing my executive producer. I don't know why. It's because it's something in my head. All right. How about housing? Look, uh, we don't have enough houses. I mean, they're getting harder and harder to build. It's called zoning. Mortgage rates have come down dramatically. Maybe things get better in the spring, but I don't want you to cry for the home builders. Finally, there's Fang. Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Netflix, and Google now, Alphabet. These stocks have acquitted themselves fairly well in 2019. People hate that, right? They just hate it. They hate it. I wish I had never coined it, but I did. Anyway, the kind of people we've been betting on against these uh, names for almost a decade, I'm sick of those people, by the way. I'm just, they, they never get to any of my parties, not including Friday. Never. I never have them in my restaurants. I don't invite anyone who challenges me on Fang anywhere. Okay. I made that clear. I've seen the remarkable rise of Apple. Okay, reverse say you were probably happy that it did. Probably made me, it made me feel bad. It didn't. And I, I'm content to say it's just not that expensive. 15 times earnings. Facebook never lost the customers that the whole dead tree press said it had to. Amazon's crushing it in web services and advertising. Everything Netflix survey. Um, if there's another Netflix survey that says things aren't great, I didn't really care for that uh, Bonnie and Clyde spinoff there. I got to tell you, I fell asleep during it twice. And Alphabet. I'm not kidding. Twice. And Alphabet, I, I, nothing good, but it, it's awfully cheap versus, say, the consumer packaged good stocks with better balance sheet and faster growth. Oh, okay, I do worry about these stocks being a source of funds for new IPOs. But the breaking of the lift deal and the crunching of the prospectus, prospective Pinterest offering, it makes me less concerned. Here's the bottom line. After one of the worst days of the year, although I felt personally pretty good, I want you to be prepared for all the people who are trying to call a top in this market. Now you know the top 10 reasons why all the blabbermouths are going to say that we're peaking, right? And you know what? I, I, look, some of them are true. I, I, we could be going down a little bit. But the next time you freak out because of one of these, remember that I did this? You're the top. You know, it's, it's, it's like that. It's pretty good, huh? Cole Porter, okay. You're the uh, cat, cat's pajamas there. And all I can say is now you've seen them, and now you know what the enemy is. And it is us. Can I see? Uh, no, I want to speak to. I'd like to speak to D in, in Virginia. D. Yay. <laughs> Booyah, Jim. Booyah, D. <laughs> First, may I please give a big shout-out to my amazing husband, Alonzo, also from Virginia, who got me started investing. In love Alonzo. Do we love money. Alonzo in here? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Very cool. Alonzo. Zo. <laughs> we call him Zo. <laughs> I'm sorry. I shouldn't interrupt. <laughs> recently and my we love your show Jim it's definitely the most interactive educational we watch it every day so thank you thank you thank you I beginning to feel irrelevant I need this oh thank you so tonight I wanted to ask you about another one of my my favorite things which is Etsy I am part of the Etsy cult following I love shopping I love unique everything and I have found some really good finds especially recently on Etsy so my question for you is at almost $67 a share, should I make Etsy Inc. a part of my long-term stock yes. portfolio? What do you think? Josh say? Silverman <laughs> and Etsy, they are fabulous. Believe it or not, even with this stock at $8 billion, I think it is dramatically <laughs> undervalued. I am with you. I think it is the craft mall for the ages. And let me, I'm going to twofer. I'm throwing in Shopify. Casey in Missouri. Casey. Hey, Booyah, Jim. Booyah, Case. Um, 
I've been following the show for a long time. Okay. I started watching with my dad when I was in college, and I just have to say that as a young female investor, yes. the spotlight you shine okay. on the importance of women and leadership and management and investment world is so awesome and appreciated. Oh, wow. That's fantastic. And we've got a lot we of people who aren't supposed to be liking stocks who are in the market. The surveys are wrong. Welcome aboard. We need more of it. Definitely. Um, so I purchased Domo back in December, shortly after their CEO was on your show. Yeah, I liked and, him. Didn't you like him? Yes, he was great and really inspired me to purchase. And since the first of the year, it's done very well. Um, peaked last month and has since pulled back a bit. Oh, so. I think we're fine. I always love the fact that it was a Utah-based cloud company. I think, Casey, it's a winner. I like these guys. I thought, hey, Josh should come back on the show. He is a dynamite guy. And thank you for those kind comments. And we've got a lot of, of sons and dads and moms and dad, you know, the whole shooting match. They're all watching. And that's what we want. All right? You may start to hear uh, the top callers. I gave you their list so it doesn't shock you. Except for they're going to go, whoa, scary sell. And I'm the other one going to say, you know, here's something I'm concerned about. Because I am a person of great reason. Now, I don't agree with all these, but I want you to prepare when you start hearing rumblings about why you should be scared out of your wits and your pants and all the other stuff. Oh, man, money time. Who says you can't go home? I always like that song. Zillow's new CEO is taking over taking over uh, the online real estate giant he helped launch 14 years ago. He's back. Can it make a difference for shareholders? I'm eyeing its curb appeal. <laughs> then, this market has been heading higher thanks to the moves in tech and oil plays. But after today's decline, is the uptrend over? I'm tackling the technicals to find out. And as investors seek opportunities to boost the environment in their bank accounts, could an under-the-radar but hard-nosed money play about energy be worth the eyeing? I'm investigating. So stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at CNBC.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. I want people to feel like they just learned something. We have journalists in the far corners of the universe. I can't wait to get all of those resources under one hour-long newscast where we can deliver the facts of the day, clearly and concisely, in context and with perspective, and tell people what's happening, what it all means. Get the truth, not the spin. The News with Shepard Smith. Subscribe to the podcast today. You know, I'm a big believer in management. The decisions made at the top can make or break a company. But good management alone is not enough. Even this brilliant CEO can't suspend the law of physics or economics for that matter. Just look at Zillow, the online real estate kingpin that made a very bizarre decision last year. For the entirety of its existence, this company had a pretty straightforward business model. Their website provides users with all sorts of information about home values, and then they sell ads to real estate agents. Easy peasy. But Zillow has a high-quality problem. They've become so dominant in their core business that growth's become a lot harder to come by. So last year, then-CEO Spencer Raskoff made a bold move. He announced that Zillow would start flipping houses. 
Yeah, flipping houses. Given that the company's got a tremendous amount of knowledge about the housing market, Rascoff figured they could use that experience and their expertise to buy homes and then quickly sell them for a nice profit. Right out of the box, I was skeptical about this new business, and, and, and I grew more skeptical as the company reported a series of disastrous quarters. So last October, I told you to sell Zillow, even after the stock had been hammered, because the pivot to actually investing in real estate seemed so ill-considered to me that I just didn't want to see anyone lose money in the stock. The business of flipping houses is inherently a lot more risky than maintaining an online repository of housing data. Plus, it didn't exactly fill me with confidence that Zillow started doing this just as the housing market froze over last year. At the time, the stock was trading at 40 bucks and changed. It plunged to 26 over the next month and a half. And while Zillow's rebounded at 36 as of today, you still sidestepped a 10% decline if you got out of this one on my recommendation. But a lot has changed since I told you to, to sell the stock. When Zillow first reported in February, the results were better than many people feared. And more importantly, we learned that CEO Spencer Raskoff was stepping down. With Rich Barton, the co-founder and chairman who served as CEO until 2010, taking his place, this guy Barton's a legend. He didn't just start Zillow. He co-founded Expedia in the 90s and then Glassdoor a dozen years ago. We all love Glassdoor. He's been on the board of Netflix since it was a privately held DVD rental service. Barton knows how to transform a business, which is what Zillow's trying to do. When the news broke, the stock screamed higher, vaulting from $35 to $43 in a single session. However, since then, Zillow's given up about uh, nearly all those gains. So what do we make of the story now? Is it time to buy Zillow now that they've broomed the old leadership and brought in someone that Wall Street seems to believe in? Not so fast. The good ship Zillow may have a new captain, but I'll tell you, this guy Barton, he has got his work cut out for him, and it's not going to be easy. Don't get me wrong. I believe he can eventually turn things around. He's absolutely the right choice for the job. Still, no matter how amazing Barton may be, this is a troubled company. People and turnarounds don't happen overnight. They take time. While he's trying to right the ship, I don't expect the stock to do very much, meaning there are better places to put your money. In short, I think it's too early to bet on Zillow, and I'll tell you why. First, though. Let's address the obvious counter-argument. When Zillow reported in late February, the company delivered a genuine upside surprise. You got a nice top and bottom line beat with really robust revenue guidance for the next quarter, although the earnings forecast was a lot less upbeat. Zillow also rolled out some ambitious long-term targets. Over the next three to five years, management expects the core online real estate division to $2 billion in revenue. That's a 56% increase versus 2018, with an EBITDA margin, that's earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization, climbing to 30% from 16.2% last quarter. All good. Zillow is also planning to reach a point where they, they're buying 5,000 houses a month in the real estate flipping division with $20 billion in annualized revenues. And the company wants their mortgage business to originate more than 3,000 loans per month. Now, these numbers, combined with the management reshuffle, caused the stock to spike nearly 25% in a single day, even if most of those gains have now been a race. But i got to wonder, what exactly was Zillow's stock responding to here? Was it the better-than-feared numbers? After a truly terrible quarter in November, was it the guidance? Was it simply that Zillow had gotten rid of Spencer Raskoff, the architect of the company's recent misfortunes? Consider what the analysts are saying here. Yesterday, Callan upgraded Zillow from market perform to outperform, raising the price target to 46 bucks. Their thesis? First of all, they believe in Rich Barton and Alan Parker, the new CFO. As they put it, and I quote, new leadership looks well-suited for massive uh, change, end quote. These analysts also think Zillow is being too conservative with its guidance for the Internet business. The company is talking about 6% revenue growth in the current quarter, down from 15% last quarter. And they don't think Zillow will have much trouble hitting the long-term targets they laid out in February. In short... 
Callan argues that Zillow's got a terrific core business. And if management can hit their targets in the new housing division, that could represent an enormous amount of upside, even though it also makes the story more risky. What about the bear thesis? A little less than a month ago, Barclays downgraded Zillow from equal weight to underweight, uh, which is uh, hold to sell, basically, with a $32 price target. Even these bearish analysts have glowing praise for this man, Rich Barton, calling him one of the best executives in the Internet with a track record that's second to none. But when it comes to the house flipping business, Barclays goes on to say, they, and I quote, think the deck is stacked heavily against Zillow given macro competencies and challenges in home flipping compared to its profitable core business, end quote. They make a couple of important points here. So far, Zillow's bought 686 homes and sold 177 of them. They're up and running in seven markets and expect to double that by the end of the year. Barclays notes that they've been doing okay with their home sales, but they think Zillow's building up a backlog of unprofitable inventory. Yeah, they're currently sitting on 509 homes, and it's the good ones that sell first. The second problem, they think Wall Street's underestimating just how expensive the business can get. Zillow only wants to buy 5,000 homes a month, then fix them up and sell them? Hey, doing that at scale can be very expensive. According to Barclays, Wall Street is underestimating the cost and complexity of this move. Third, they're a little more skeptical about the core business, given that Zillow is so focused on the housing side of things. So where do I come out here? Look, I respect this Rich Barton enormously. I've certainly read enough about him to say that. Uh, if anyone can make this transformation work, it will be him. But, man, even the bulls at Cowan are talking about the housing business burning cash through 2023 or 2024. We need to wait a full four or five years before Zillow starts making money on this? No, thank you. The bottom line, maybe Rich Barton can orchestrate a phenomenal turnaround at Zillow. I'm glad he's running things again. But I think this headlong rush into the house flipping business could prove to be very risky. And even if it works, there will be absolutely be some brutal speed bumps along the way. I like the old Zillow, even if it was slowing down a bit, as it was a lot less risky. I'm not yet sold on the new Zillow, even with a much better class of CEO. Stick with Kramer. understand a lot about the market if you know the leadership. And every market has leaders. For the past few months, the averages have charged higher, with tech and oils leading the way. There are generals, and today they got their heads handed to them, hence the broader pullback. So can they keep it up, or will the generals end up being lined up against the wall and shot for the newfound cowardice in the face of the enemy? Tonight, we're going off the charts with help of Carly Garner. She's that brilliant technician who's the co-founder of DeCarly Trading and the author of Higher Probability Commodity Trading to figure out whether tech and the oils can keep climbing after the incredible gains that they've already racked up this year. So let's start with something weird. I mean, this is weird. Take a look at this. If you didn't know what these are, this is incredible. The daily chart plotting of both the action the tech-heavy NASDAQ 100, that's the 100 largest non-financial stocks in the NASDAQ composite, and the price of crude oil. You wouldn't think these two things would be joined at the hip. Nobody ever talks about the technology oil complex, do they? But over the past 180 trading days, Garner points out that the NASDAQ 100 futures and the light, sweet crude futures have settled in the same direction about 84% of the time. Hey, listen, just in the last 90 trading days, the correlation rises to a stunning 94%. In other words, oil and tech are practically trading in lockstep with each other. They both peaked at the same time in October. They bottomed at the same time in December. 
The one difference is that tech has bounced harder. But it's crystal clear that these two generals are marching in the same direction. Something I've tried to explain to you over and over again, that good news for stocks is when oil goes up and vice versa. Now, there are very, very compelling reasons for this linkage. Neither the NASDAQ 100 nor the price of crude should have been hammered so much in the fourth quarter. Like we've told you over again, over and over again, most stocks never should have been down so much in the first place. And that's one of the biggest drivers of the 2019 rally so far. Plus, tech and oil both benefit from a stronger economy. So when the Federal Reserve took a more accommodative stance in early January, it created a backdrop where investors felt confident buying tech and buying oil. That said, in the long run, it's kind of crazy to expect this correlation to continue, right? Especially as the Nasdaq 100 is within striking distance of its all-time highs. That brings us back to the big question. Is the run in tech sustainable? While Garner thinks that, a, that that's a reasonable fear, she also expects a last hurrah rally to new highs before any significant selling shows up. Both of these are important, last hurrah and then selling. Her reasoning. Ironically, in the futures market, big institutional investors are still betting heavily against stocks. Garner loves to look at the Commodity Futures Trading Commission's Commitment of Traders Report, often called the COT Report, which contains amazingly useful data about how large speculators, meaning major institutional money managers, are positioned in various futures markets. When it comes to both the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ 100 futures, these speculators are still net short albeit only marginally. But that's not what you'd expect to see if Wall Street's getting complacent. I felt good about this, by the way, as, as someone who believes stocks can go higher. Now, these bears have been fueling the fire all year as the short sellers get squeezed, meaning stocks go up and they're forced to cover or exit their positions. To do that, the shorts need to buy back the borrowed stock they previously sold. Previously sold. Like I always tell you, there's nothing better for a bull market than negativity, because negativity means you've got more potential buyers waiting to be converted to the bullish cause. Now that the net short position is mostly cleared out, Garner says we're witnessing a new dynamic. If tech stocks are going to keep rallying, those moves will need to be fueled by legitimate bullish bets, not just short cover. Check out this ultra long-term monthly chart of the NASDAQ 100 going back to 1999. Based on its very long-term upturn, Garner could see this tech-heavy index making its way back to its all-time high at 7.835, okay, up about 3.5% from where it's currently trading. But that's where she says you need to start worrying about tech turning on you. That said, she expects any pullback from these levels would probably be temporary and relatively shallow. On the other hand, if the Nasdaq 100 can break out beyond its old highs, Garner thinks we could get a kind of blow-off top that might take us as high as 8455. That's a phenomenal 11% from here. As far as she's concerned, that's the most likely scenario. That's right, 11% is most likely scenario because April through late summer tends to be a seasonally strong period for stocks. And the, there are still lots of investors who liquidated their holdings late last year. And they, they feel like they got to get back into the market. I said this could happen. It would go up so much, they come back in, they don't sell. Of course, if Garner turns out to be, the wrong, to be wrong and the NASDAQ 100 breaks down, we got a floor of support at 6550, uh, down 13% from here. Another uh, more ominous floor at uh, 5610, that's uh, down 26%. Here's the problem. Whether or not this tech rally has one, le- more, one more leg higher or not, Garner says that sooner or later we're going to get a correction, and she expects it to be fairly painful. So if the tech cohort keeps climbing from here, she recommends gradually ringing the register uh, uh, on the way up to protect your profit. So you, maybe you do some selling here, some selling here, selling here, selling here in a stage way. You know how I like to do that. How about this market's uh, other key general, though? How about oil? 
Take a gander at this weekly chart of the West Texas Intermediate Crude. That's the American number that we all focus on. Um, it shows the CFTC's commitment to traders data that I mentioned earlier. Okay, this is the COT traders book. Uh, Ed Garner's got a terrific uh, track record here on this stuff. Now, by the way, she's been calling for oil to rebound to $63 ever since it melted down to the low 40s late last year. It's at 64. That's one of the reasons why I wanted to feature her stuff tonight. Most of last year, large speculators were holding record net long positions in the oil futures, which is why Garner predicted the big fourth quarter breakdown in the first place. At this point, large speculators have built up their net long position back to 481,000 futures contracts. But last year, the number got as high as 740,000. So you can see this is, you know, they're buying. It's not still where it was uh, before things fell apart. In other words, Garner thinks that the bulls could potentially have more buying power here to take oil still higher. All right. How about this more granular weekly chart of West Texas crude? Okay, oil has now rallied more than $20 from its December lows. Retracing about half of its fourth quarter decline. Garner thinks that we could get some temporary profit taking here, but long term, she sees oil prices headed to, to $80 a barrel. Well, you know, that's actually probably going to, somebody's going to start selling stocks at that point. Now, this tends to be a seasonally uh, strong period for crude. The one hurdle is the ceiling of resistance oil is brushing up against, and that's at 64. Uh, if it can jump that hurdle, she thinks it could be relatively smooth sailing to 79 where it runs into the downtrend line going back to 2014. If oil can jump that hurdle, too, then she thinks it could easily make its way to 85, at which point the bears would start to gain an edge. In the short term, though, Garner says oil could pull back to its floor of support at 55 bucks, but she thinks that's unlikely and you want to be a buyer at those levels anyway. The bottom line, oil and technology have led this market higher for months. And now the charts, as interpreted by Carly Garner, suggest that they're running into some resistance. But she thinks both groups could have at last one more hurrah, with oil having more potential upside. My view? Hey, I'll take it. Let's go to Ted in Arizona, please. Ted. Jim, thanks for taking my call. I'm a huge fan. Oh, I'm glad you're here. Hey, um. I was thinking of adding energy to my portfolio, and I was wondering if you think the services area would be preferable to the production area. I was looking at core laboratory CLB. Okay, I, I'm going to be, you know, I, I, I can't be more emphatic about this. Um, core has been a disappointment. It's, you know, uh, David's been, David Dempsey's been on a lot. He's a terrific gentleman. But core does not work at these levels because oil's not going straight up. I have uh, often opined that Schlumberger is better, but Schlumberger's been bad too. So uh, all I'm going to do is not let you into house of with me. It's just not fair, man. I don't. Misery does not want more company. Lauren in Texas, please, Lauren. Hi. So I wanted to talk about Pioneer Natural Resources, PXD. PXD. So May... Yes. May of last year, the stock price was $200 a share. So as you're aware, Scott Sheffield took over as CEO once again and replaced Tim Dove, who you actually had on your show in 2017. Sure, sure. So uh, Pioneer just announced layoffs. They're saying it could be um, 300 but I've heard it's more. So what really? is your recommendation? Um, stock price today is 149 Should okay. I All right, here's the, th- here's the thing. I'm never going to say no to someone who wants to own an oil and wants to own Pioneer, because Pioneer is probably one of the best run, along with EOG, okay? I earlier stumbled on Anadarko and on Apache. That has made me totally gun-shy. And I'm gun-shy because I've done a lot of work on these, and I've done ch- I've looked at all the bo- all the stuff that you can find, and I still got them wrong. 
And I'll tell you, if I had just looked at Procter and Clorox, well, let's say I would have made more money. All right, they may be an odd couple, but oil and technology have helped to leave this market high. However, tonight's chartist thinks they could be headed for some resistance. Not yet, but soon. She also thinks we could be in for one last hurrah upwards. So take a look. Hey, much more made of money yet. With sustainable investing on the rise, can a company reducing climate change promoting energy efficiency profit off the trend for you? I'm talking to the CEO of a very under-the-radar energy player that one of our viewers brought to us called Hannon Armstrong. Then, what will it take for oil stocks to hit a bottom? Well, we just had some good questions about it, but I'm going to give you my take. And all your calls are rapid fire in tonight's edition of The Lightning Round. So stay with Kramer. Every now and then we get a caller who totally stumps me with this talk that I can't really don't know much about. And because this is the most interactive show on television, we need to do some serious homework. Last month, Robin Kentucky got me with Hannon Armstrong Sustainable Infrastructure Capital. That's HACI for all you home gamers. When I looked into this, I realized this is a really cool story. Hannon Armstrong is a real estate investment trust that puts its money exclusively into projects that fight climate change. We're talking energy efficiency, renewables, and other sustainable infrastructure markets. The core idea is elegant in its simplicity. If you believe that climate change is going to be a global catastrophe, as I do, reasonable premise, I think, then over the long haul, sustainable investments should pay off. Now, Hannon Armstrong has caught fire of late. It's up more than 30% for the year, though the stock still supports a 5.3% yield. Can it keep climbing? Let's check in with Jeff Eckel. He is the chairman and CEO of Hannon Armstrong Sustainable Infrastructure Capital. Learn more about his company and his vision for the future. Mr. Eckel, welcome to Mid Money. Good to see you, sir. Have a seat. Good to be here, Well, it's Jim. a delight to have you. And I think what, what I, like I, want to to start, I want you to start off by telling us what are the three Ds of the future electric power system? Decentralization, digitalization, and decarbonization. These are the vision that Jerry Brown once traced out to me in 1976. He said it could happen. You're bringing it to happen. Absolutely. And we've been doing this for almost 40 years. I was doing solar projects at Hannon Armstrong in the 80s. Um, It has, and those projects are still operating. Um, And it has, over time, taken root. But something has happened in the market in the last three years, and it's a combination of incredible cost reductions in solar and wind technology, the emergence of storage, the incredible application of digitalization in the built environment where 40% of all greenhouse gas emissions come from. And the nice part of all this is it needs investment. And that's what we're purpose-built for, is to make those kinds of investments. Now, one of the things I really loved about what you're talking about, you said that while we believe strong social and governance policies, we talked about ESG policies, will improve stockholder returns. It's the environmental actions, particularly related to carbon and climate change, that are, that are most dear, near and dear to you. But so you believe that strong social and governance policies will, in their own, actually lead to higher returns? I think it reduces risk more than um, necessarily returns. Risk. So you keep a stable workforce. You keep your intellectual property uh, in, in the in-house. Um, you treat people well, they're going to do very well as owners, and virtually everybody in Hannah Armstrong is an owner in the business. On corporate governance, simply brook no uh, uh, modifications to, to X 